Tonight we're thinking about discipleship that is extraordinary. And Jesus, there is no other person like Jesus. Jesus was extraordinary. There's no one who can compare with him. And if we are going to follow Jesus, if we are going to become like Jesus, we should, by His grace, be extraordinary as well. And so, it's a, in some sense, it's a nice thought, us being extraordinary people. Uh, maybe the bad news is the world might just think we're weird. It probably thinks that anyway. But that's what we're called to be, different. Not just ordinary, not just what we were before, but extraordinary become like Jesus. We can't follow Jesus and just remain the way we were before. Now, we're going to look at three areas here, three sections in the Sermon on the Mount that's focused on this. We're following Bonhoeffer's book again. And we're going to look, first of all, at truthfulness. And let's read there from verse 33, and just a part of it here. Again, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, Bonhoeffer looks at this section as about oaths, and he asks the question, which he then answers is, what is an oath? And he says, it is an appeal made to God in public, calling upon Him to witness a statement made in connection with an event or fact, past, present, or future. So, for example, it could be in a court case, and you take the Bible in your hand, and you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and what's the next bit? So help me God. And that's an oath. It's calling upon God to do it. And so an oath can be something about we're going to tell the truth, and we're doing it at the moment. It can be something about we promise to do in the future. It could be promising about what we're saying about the past. Now, as Bonhoeffer thinks this, he's trying to get into the mindset of Christ. What really is important to Jesus as he speaks about this? And you see this we quote, he says, his concern for complete truthfulness. The very existence of oaths is a proof that there are such things as lies. If lying were unknown, there would be no need for oaths. Oaths are intended as a barrier against untruthfulness. And so, his point is that God wants us to be truthful. God wants us to be honest. And he says, if people were truthful, if people were honest, they could go to a court case, they go to here, there, and yonder, and there would be no need for an oath at all. If you could just trust that what people were saying was the truth. The fact there are oaths, and the fact you have to get people to promise to tell the truth, gives a sense that people are not very trustworthy. Now, he says this in the, the Reformation Confessions, it is expressly affirmed that there can be no question of Jesus prohibiting oaths exacted by the state or in a court of law. The churches of the Reformation were convinced that every oath demanded by the state was covered by this exception. And so, Bonhoeffer, as he looks at what Jesus said, he says that the Reformed churches of the Reformation said, well, this is speaking about something else. It's not applying to those oaths you might make in a court case 
or you might have to make to a government. And Bonhoeffer, he really questions that. He says, that's maybe too simple. That's maybe too easy just to say that and to try and get around this. And this is a quote. He says, since the profession of Christianity does not confer an invaluable knowledge of the past, the invocation of Almighty God will serve only to establish the integrity of his mind unconscious, but not to confirm a statement which, after all, may be open to error. Now, we'll pause there for a second. So, he's saying, if you take an oath that you're going to tell the truth, you taking an oath is no guarantee that you will tell the truth. Now, it may help to ensure that the person who's going to speak, they're going to be sincere, and they're going to be serious and seek to be honest. But he says, no one has infallible knowledge about the past. And so, if you've ever tried to, if you've seen an accident happen, and, and, and things happen so quickly, uh, sometimes you wonder, did that really happen, or did it happen this way? And he's saying, taking an oath doesn't guarantee that you actually will tell the truth, even though you try to be sincere, because our knowledge isn't perfect. And then he goes on and says, moreover, since he is never Lord of his own future, he will always be extremely cautious about giving a pledge, a pledge about the future. For example, an oath of allegiance. For he is aware how dangerous it is to do so. And so he's saying, even taking an oath about the future, taking promises what you're going to do. We need to be very careful about that because we don't know what the future is going to be. We don't know things can change. I had a friend, and one of their great statements was never say never in a sense, Things can change in the future, and how we see things now may be different in the future. And so, what this is saying that if you're going to take an oath, if you're going to use God's name to a promise, it needs to be really thought through. It needs to be taken variously, very seriously. And basically, he's basically getting back to what Jesus is saying. It's better just let your yes be yes and your no be no. When I became a, an ordained minister, one of the things I was, I became a marriage licensor. In every presbytery, there were maybe five or six marriage licensors. And uh, so, if somebody was getting married in my congregation or someone was getting married in one of the congregations around me, they would come to me and get a, a marriage license, where now they go to the, the council. And they'd come to me, but one of the things they would have to do would be to take an oath that there was no legal impediment for them getting married. But the government was aware, the church was aware as well. Some people maybe take this here and say, we can't take an oath. And so there was an alternative, which was a, a declaration. Now, I hadn't fully worked out in my own mind what's the difference between the declaration and the oath, but there was a declaration of slightly different wording that some could take if they didn't want to take the oath. But the key thing here is, Bonhoeffer wants to get back to us the whole sense of truthfulness. We, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we are to be people of the truth. And he says this here, only those who follow Jesus and cleave to Him are living in complete truthfulness. Such men have nothing to hide from their Lord. Their life is revealed before Him. Jesus has recognized them and led them into the way of truth. 
complete truthfulness is only possible where sin has been uncovered and forgiven by Jesus. When we know the cross, we are no longer afraid of the truth. So, he's saying that the followers of Jesus, and only the followers of Jesus, are really people who are living in the truth. And what he is encouraging is that we need to be those who are fully open, fully honest with the Lord. We're absolutely truthful to the Lord. And this is the crucial thing. If we're going to be a people of truth and a people of integrity that others can trust, we need to have that openness with the Lord. The end of Genesis 2, there's that bit where the Adam and Eve, when they get married, and it says, it's a wee bit that's embarrassing, uh, they were naked and they knew no shame. I always refer to that we passage in marriage preparation classes when we speak about communication. And saying, when it says Adam and Eve were naked, it wasn't just about the fact they weren't wearing clothes. They were naked mentally. They were able to be totally open and honest with each other. Nothing was held back. No secrets, no deceit. And that is the way we need to be with God. If there's something you know the Lord is putting finger on in your life, don't ignore it. Talk to God about it. Be honest and open. And the way we become people of truth is when we are truthful with the Almighty. So that's the first thing, truthfulness. And then the second thing he's speaking about is revenge. And let's read there from verse 38. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if any slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, Bonhoeffer, I think, puts this very helpfully. The phrase eye for eye, two for eye, comes from the Old Testament law. And he says this, in the Old Testament, personal rights are protected by divinely established system of retribution. The aim of retribution is to establish a proper community to convict and overcome evil and eradicate it from the body politic of the people of God. And so, the purpose of such expressions as an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, was that when people did anything wrong, there would be retribution, the punishment would fit the crime, so that harmony could be restored within the community. Now, that we phrase an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, and where it was being misused in Jesus' day, is that if somebody poked out your eye, it didn't mean that you should go and poke out the other person's eye. But it did mean that you should never do anything more than poke out another person's eye. Or if they knocked out your tooth, you should never be looking for a punishment that is beyond that. So, it's not a, a law which is saying, you get your eye hurt, you hurt their eye. It's a law which was seeking to put limits on people's retribution, on the punishments due. But this is the purpose of this Old Testament. It was to have a society that was fair, a society where people, when they were wronged, justice meant that they had a sense that things were put back and put right. As part of our legal system, I think, still misses that. Now, Bonhoeffer, he rightly highlights how the New Testament church 
is not equivalent to the nation state of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, and so these laws do not apply directly in that, and we have to look at things in a different way. And this is what he says, at this point, it becomes evident that when a Christian meets with injustice, he no longer clings to his rights and defends them at all costs. The only way to overcome evil is to let it run itself to a standstill because it does not find the resistance it's looking for. Resistance merely creates further evil and adds fuel to the flames. But when evil meets no opposition and encounters no obstacle, but only patient endurance, its sting is drawn, and at last it meets an opponent which is more than its match. So Bonhoeffer's arguing there that Jesus is arguing that if you just resist evil, face on, you will just make things worse. Where if you don't resist evil, then indeed evil will run its course. Now, what he's saying here is a wee bit like, if you remember back, we were doing the evenings talking about our young people in school, and when we were talking about bullying, we talked about uh, Brooks Gibbs, you'll see a picture of, and Brooks Gibbs was talking about how you deal with bullies, and bullies act as they do for a reaction. And if you hit back at them, that is what they want. They want that reaction. But you remember how when the girl was being really nasty to him in the wee video, he just responded, and like, she says, you're stupid. And he replied, I know I'm stupid. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. My parents say I'm stupid. And by doing that, he's taken the wind out of her sails. And in a sense, what Bonhoeffer is saying there is that if someone is nasty to us, if we just react to them in a similar way, it just makes things worse. Whereas if we act as meek people, that we're thinking out in the Beatitudes, that we don't indeed fight back the way we naturally want to fight back, then indeed evil is dealt with. And the point he's trying to highlight is what the battle is, is not us against this other person. It's a battle between evil and good. And what we are trying to do is to overcome the evil that is in people's lives. He says this, by refusing to pay back the enemy in his own coin, and by preferring to suffer without resistance, the Christian exhibits the sinfulness of contumely and insult. Violence stands condemned by its failure to evoke counter-violence. So he says, when people are nasty to us, and we refuse to respond in a nasty way, who's shown up? The person who is nasty, the person whose words have been unkind, they are shown up. When we refuse to play the game their way, they are shown up. Now, we come to the Reformers again and what they thought about this. And there's a quote here about the Reformers. He says, The Reformers offered a decisively new interpretation of this passage. They distinguished between personal sufferings and those incurred by Christians in performance of duty as bearers of an office ordained by God. Maintaining that the precept of nonviolence applies to the first but not to the second. Now, let me explain what he's saying now. This is important. Let's take, for example, someone's a policeman, right? 
if the policeman is a, a Christian and he's off duty and someone just is insulting to him the way they would be insulting to anyone else, as a Christian, he turns the other cheek. As a Christian, in that personal situation, he responds to their evil with kindness and refuses to play the game. But if he is on duty, if he's serving as a policeman, it is not his job if he's serving as a policeman and serving as an agent of the state just to turn the other cheek and to ignore evil. Where would we be if our police force never confronted and took on that which was evil in our society? And this is what the reformer says. There's a situation where in a, a personal sense, someone will be wronged and let it happen. But if they're acting as a servant of the state in this role, as a policeman, for example, they're not, they're not just to ignore the evil. Now, I think that distinction is good, but Bonhoeffer, he didn't like it. He, he rejected it. He, he says, no, you're trying to get a, around this. You're trying to look, as it were, for the, the way that you can avoid this, looking for a loophole in, in all this. But then you have to remember what happened to Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer began in his early life being a pacifist and basically saying there's no time for a Christian basically to take up violence. Uh, part of his attitude was, you remember, two of his brothers served in the First World War. One was killed and the other was so traumatized he turned away from God. And that put him down the road of being a, a pacifist, that the Christians should never be involved in violence at all, even in the sense of state. But then you remember what Bonhoeffer got involved in. He got involved in the resistance. And he used that expression, when a madman's at the wheel, it's our job not just to tend the wounds of those who are injured, it's our job to stop the madman driving the car. And that is why Bonhoeffer, and this is a real struggle for him. This wasn't easy for him. A real struggle for him, he realized, just this attitude of always turning the cheek when you're facing the Nazis and a tyrant like Hitler, it doesn't work. Now, Bonhoeffer is right in the danger of us talking away. And this is the thing we have to be careful about, talking away our responsibility to obey this teaching and watering down the teaching of Jesus. I think what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about insult. He's talking about personal offense. He's not talking about never physically resisting evil. I think the balance of this, if you've got your Bible or turn over to Romans chapter 12, and Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 13, I think show us the right balance in this, that when there is a place to turn the other cheek and where there's a place to confront evil, and I think it supports what the reformers were saying, there's a distinction between someone in their personal capacity and then someone acting in a role, for example, ordained by God, like in government. And he says this, Romans 12 and verse 17, he says, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never offend yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by sowing doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there Paul is speaking to the individual Christian that they are to overcome evil with good. Talking about the situations in your everyday life. But if you keep your Bible open, go to chapter 13 and then to verse 3. And this is where the perfect balance of God's Word can be seen. It says there, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, there's no sense there that a government confronted by evil turns the other cheek. It speaks there that he carries a sword. He is to be an avenger who carries out God's wrath. Do you see the balance in our individual lives? We're not to fight against evil and against insults and that, but the government, and if we're involved with the government, then we are to confront evil. And there's even, I think, as private citizens, if, if somebody is going to attack us, I think we certainly have the right to self-defense. And I do think, particularly if someone is going to attack our families, we cannot love our families and not try and defend our families. But the crucial thing is it's about insult, I think, we've talked about there. But normally what he's saying, as Jesus is saying in the situations, and again, I don't want to try and talk our way out of the challenge of this. But the thing is that when people are nasty to us, when people are rude to us, when people insult us, when people wrong us, we remember we're not fighting against them. We're fighting against the evil in their lives. And that evil is best overcome with good. Now, there are certain things we might have to get the police involved, but personally, we seek to overcome evil of good. Bonhoeffer, just one final point in this, he says as we quote, Is then the demand of Jesus nothing but an impractical ideal? He says this, The cross is the only power in the world which proves that suffering love can avenge and vanquish evil. I think one of the best examples of that is Elizabeth Elliot. Think of her, the story, the Aka Indians in Ecuador, and her husband with several other men. They were killed by these Aka Indians. And she went to be a missionary, to be involved in bringing the gospel to these people. She overcome the evil in their lives by being a disciple of Jesus Christ, by taking up her cross, by following him, laying aside personal feelings, 
and doing what is right for the glory of God. And then the third thing we look at is the enemy, the enemy, the extraordinary. And you look there at verse 43. You've heard it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I said you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now Bonhoeffer says that this, the will of God to which the law gives expression, is that men should defeat their enemies by loving them. His behavior must be determined not by the way others treat him, but by the treatment he himself receives from Jesus. That's the benchmark. We don't respond to people and say, well, they've done that to me, I'll do that to them. That is not the way a Christian behaves. The way a Christian behaves is, I'll respond to that person the way God in Jesus has responded to me and my sin. He goes on, he says, as love asks nothing in return, but seeks those who need it. And who needs our love more than those who are consumed with hatred and are utterly devoid of love? The more bitter our enemy's hatred, the greater his need of love. Now, I think that is a fantastic statement. He is saying there that we look for people who are bitter, and those are the people who really need love. If people who are bitter all they receive in return is bitterness. What's going to rule the day? Bitterness. But people who are filled with bitterness, what they need is the love of Christ and the love of Christ coming to them through the disciples of Jesus. Think of people who you know who are bitter. I don't know who comes to mind. No names, please. People in your family, people you live near, people you maybe work with, people in school. Who are the people who are bitter? Who are the people who are nasty? Do you believe that they are beyond the grace of Christ? They're not. And how is the grace of Christ going to break into their lives? Is it by you responding to them as they respond to you, as, as they treat you? Or is it by you responding to them in the way that Jesus has dealt with you in love and forgiveness? Bonhoeffer says, Am I asked how this love is to behave? Jesus gives us the answer. Bless, do good, and pray for your enemies without reserve and without respect of persons. 
if out of love for our brother we are willing to sacrifice goods, honor, and life, we must be prepared to do the same for our enemy. Through the medium of prayer, we can go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. We are doing for them what they cannot do for ourselves. We need to pray for the grace of God. We need to pray for the love of God to be so real in our lives that it will reach out to those around us and those who are bitter. And it starts in the place of prayer, praying for your enemies, those in your workplace, those in your classroom, those who you mix with day by day. They should be on your prayer list, praying for them. And put those who are most annoying and most bitter at the top of that prayer list. Bonhoeffer says this, When we love those who love us, our brethren, our nation, our friends, yes, and even our own congregation, we're no better than the heathen and the publicans. Such love is ordinary and natural and not distinctively Christian. What makes the Christian different from other men is the peculiar, the extraordinary, the unusual, that which is not a matter of course. You see, we have a real opportunity when we mix with people who are nasty. And maybe our praying is, Lord, don't let that person be so nasty to me. Don't let that person treat me this way. Lord, take that person out of my life. And maybe we should be praying, Lord, teach me how to love that person. Teach me how to reach out in love to that person. Teach me how to do that which is unusual, that which is extraordinary, that which is not a matter of course. Teach me to do that which is thoroughly Christ-like. One final quote in this. He says, the cross is the differential of the Christian religion, the power which enables the Christian to transcend the world and to win the victory. In the face of the cross, the disciples realized that they too were his enemies and that he had overcome them by his love. It is this that opens the disciples' eyes and enables him to see his enemy as our brother. Who was Jesus thinking about and praying about as he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they knew not what they do? Well, undoubtedly, he was praying for those who had nailed him to the cross. He was praying for the religious leaders who had got him taken to the cross. But I think it's more. Christian, he was praying for you. He was praying for me, who would be his enemy, people who would live a life of sin, which would deserve his judgment. And he just wants to pour into our lives love and forgiveness. Where we deserve wrath and judgment, he pours his tender mercy and his compassion to us. That is extraordinary. That is unusual. 
that is not the run of the mill. And if we are going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, if we are going to be followers of Him, if we are going to take up the cross and follow Him, we have to walk this path. This is not an optional extra. We cannot say we belong to Jesus and be unprepared for this. Now, we cannot do it in our strength. None of us can do this in our strength. But listen, he who calls you is no mug. Jesus is no mug. Jesus is no fool. He who calls you to do this, to show love where evil confronts you, he who calls you to love your enemies, he will supply the grace, the mercy that you need. And where does that flow from? It flows from the cross. The more time we spend at the cross, the more time we spend with the crucified Christ, just basking in His presence, the more that love and compassion will flow into us and can flow to a needy and bitter world. Let's pray.